episode 277, is now the time when value-based payments overcome a fierce and sticky fee-for-service overlord. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Look, bottom line, value-based care has to be the future of healthcare delivery in this country. That's just inarguable at this point. Nobody disagrees, except for healthcare industry stakeholders trying to reap as much reward as possible while the going is good. And they've been really successful with their reaping thus far. Here's the thing, though. There's speculation that health insurance premiums may go up like 4 to 40% next year if the status quo remains the status quo. Is this the moment when we all start to get real about value-based care? Not because it would be a nice thing to get up and running, but because we have to. Healthcare costs are already too high in this country. You can't just add 40% and think that somebody's going to find that kind of change in the bottom of their pocket, which has already been turned inside out. But also because on the provider side of the equation, it's less risky. Here's what I mean by less risky. All of those health systems struggling right now because of the decrease in elective procedures, if they had all had a significant portion of their revenue derived from value-based agreements where they were contracted to take care of populations, they'd all still be getting paid their global slash capitated payments right now and actually able to take care of patients who need care instead of sitting on the sidelines watching their bank accounts dwindle. Today, I speak with Eric Weaver, who is the newly minted executive director of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative based in Utah. We talk about how life could have been a lot different for PCPs and also specialists, BTW, and health systems had we lived in a value-based world instead of an FFS fee-for-service one. Considering that this pandemic might consist of waves that extend for months, if not years, this might be a call to action for providers to get meetings set up with payers, like right now, to switch up payment terms into value. But it's also a call to action for purchasers of healthcare like employers and commercial carriers. When I was talking to Guy Culpepper, a PCP in episode 272, he really wants value-based contracts, but he can't get them alone. Purchasers and payers have to be willing to come to the table and offer them. So come on, everybody. Let's belly up to the conference room table or your little Zoom Brady Bunch box, as the case may be. Now's the time to really flip the switch to payment models that work for patients and enable physicians at the same time to provide the kind of care that's in alignment with their values. One acronym hands up in this conversation that I have with Eric Weaver coming up. APM stands for Advanced Payment Model, which is, at its simplest level, a kind of value-based payment model. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Eric Weaver, welcome to Relentless Health Value. It's great to be here, Stacey. Thanks for having me. So, Eric, is this pandemic an inflection point so that coming out of it, our healthcare system will be transformed into a primarily value-based payment model, a model which has eluded us thus far? Seems like things are eventually going to settle back towards value. I mean, I think we'll have a famine in terms of the, the value-based payment discussion. But ultimately, when things settle out, I'm just thinking this has to be some type of 
inflection point. Just the economics of it are going to drive it. I mean, I've heard I've heard a lot of comparisons to you know coronavirus being the the you know, having such a, an impact just like World War II. And we haven't seen it yet, I think, in terms of obviously the mortality of it. But I think economically, sure. And if United Kingdom built their national health system post-World War II, why can't we rebuild ours? I just have to think that there's enough empirical evidence now to show that value-based payment works, aligning incentive towards better outcomes, independent physicians being a part of the healthcare ecosystem. It all drives good things to happen if we can coalesce on a common mission. And, and we have to think about how we're going to, I think, politically get over some of these entrenched interests and headwinds that prevent us from making it happen. If it's ever going to happen, it's going to happen now. And, and I just think we need to wake up. Had value-based care slash capitation models been in place throughout this whole thing, would ambulatory practices, PCPs, hospitals, would they have retained some or all of their revenue despite a decline in non-COVID elective services? Because if you're in a capitated model, you kind of get paid not based on volume. So if volume decreases, your payments don't decrease in tandem. Have you seen this playing out? Is that a true statement? From what I'm seeing, the vast majority of primary care physicians are in deep, deep trouble. So there's a real existential threat. Had they been in a capitated model on the forefront, yes, they would have been able to mitigate their uh, financial exposure and and continue to offer care. Value-based care often is synonymous or at least entails exalted primary care. So it's funny because... I asked you that question and you immediately pivoted to what's going on with primary care. Is there any penetration of that question, though, or any relevance of that question to specialists or other ambulatory providers who make a serious amount of their income doing procedures that must be in person? So I've lost, you know, upwards to 80 percent of their revenue, given the fact that people can't go. Yes. I see, though, that specialists historically have been highly profitable in primary care has been historically a a very marginalized physician specialty. You know, there just hasn't been a value on cognitive services as there has been uh, procedural volume-based care. So what do you think coming out of this then? You know, you've mentioned the risk to independent physicians, and you also said that you've seen ACOs that are not in terrible shape comparatively. Physician-led ACOs on whole perform very, very well in comparison to the health system-led ACOs. And if I look at it in terms of this race to value and how we're going to make it work, I really think that independents have to be in the driver's seat here. If there's a silver lining in this pandemic, there has to be, you know, something in terms of providing the initial, the next level of catalytic activity to really move the this seismic shift more towards value-based payment with physicians being in the driver's seat. You know, the way I see it also, you know, it's not going to, it probably won't come out of a, you know, a grassroots movement. I mean, we all know that independent providers are, they all have their independent uh, affiliations and their allegiance to their specialty groups. And, you know, the AMA doesn't seem to really represent with solidarity all physicians. But I think if the federal government can really look at this as some type of uh, Peace Corps work progress administration type effort as a new deal to really think about this reckoning that we're we're having to overcome 
And uh, from a federal and state government standpoint, how can we fund these new care models and how can we incentivize primary care practices that are really close, closely integrated into the community and providing that level of primary care and addressing social determinants? From what I'm understanding, the flashpoint would primarily be driven by a reimbursement model that advantages risk-based care as opposed to other potential drivers, which might be physicians leaving, you know, employed physicians saying, I can't take this anymore. I'm going to just strike out on my own or physicians banding together. You know, like there's been a, a lot of physicians who are teaming up more than I've ever seen before, you know, maybe around PPE, but ultimately maybe that will extend into other areas. So you're saying that all that being said, it's still going to come down to economic incentive. Yes, with a couple of caveats. I do think that physicians are going to band together. And we've already seen that anyway with the lack of PPE and really putting a spotlight on the failure of the system there. But I haven't been, you know, up until just recently, Stacey, been reading more and more about independent physicians. And I have to commend you for inviting, you know, some of the guests that you've had on in the last few weeks, David Chase and Guy Culpepper. They did an exceptional job of really bringing, you know, this issue to the forefront. I just think we have to really go through this thought experiment. How do we reimagine the healthcare system? And if we have data to show that the IDNs gobbling up the PCPs are going to drive up costs, And we have other patient-centered, relationship-based, tech-enabled primary care models that are able to decrease costs 20 to 40 percent. Why wouldn't we somehow incentivize that to be the direction? Now, it could come from, you know, I think a federal economic mandate. You know, this is kind of how we're going to structure the APM. But I also do think, you know, going back to the point you made about physicians banding together, I mean, if it's ever going to happen, it's going to happen now. And I think the scenario that we have is physicians now aren't able to stay in business. And if they are able to collectively band together and create some voice to really catalyze a social movement away from the medical industrial complex, we'll be all the better for it. Yeah, although just this morning I was reading how the American Hospital Association is suing to continue with the facility fees, which is one big reason why they were buying up ambulatory practices all over the place, because you just put a hospital name on the letterhead and you can bill $5,000 more. So there's a gigantic status quo. There's a lot of Congress people who have a hospital in their area who's vehemently contesting anything that would reduce their ability to goose the system as as much as possible to put it in the absolute most cynical terms, but often relevant. Well, it's tough. You know, health systems provide a lot of jobs and, you know, there's um, notoriety of having, you know, large, you know, nationally branded health systems in your community and they do good. But we have to think about, you know, how do we we can't allow them to be the the voice for driving the economics of our industry. You know, I, I attended a, a, a luncheon recently with Marty McCary. I believe you had him on a few weeks ago mm-hmm. on your show. And he threw out this statistic, Stacey, and it blew my mind. He was talking about the economic imperative for health value. And we all know, you know, we're approaching, you know, 20 percent of our GDP. And that's often cited, he basically said, look, you know, I looked at this with other researchers from Johns Hopkins and 48% of federal spending goes to the medical industrial complex. And he broke it down like this. He said, look, you know, 37% of federal spending or so goes to Medicare and Medicaid. You have 
Social Security, yeah, the military. Anyway, you you look at all that spending, not even including the what employers and and uh, the workforce are spending on their health care, but just federal spending. It's almost half of it. I mean, really, the only option is you know we're going to lower prices and ration care and have poor outcomes, or we're going to continue on with APMs and we're going to have better value. To me, that seems the no the like the no brainer you know solution. Like we have to figure out how to do that. If I was going to say, you know, flash question, you can say yes or no. Hospital physicians moving forward, there's going to be more of them or there's going to be less of them when this shakes out? I think there's going to be more of them invariably, but I don't think it's going to reach the critical mass that many are are, uh, betting on because I think there's enough providers that have such a overwhelming already, they they had moral injury. So if, if we're thinking about moral injury, and, you know, one of the commonly cited causes of moral injury is all of this data collection. You know, like physicians often call themselves the highest paid clerk in a hospital because they're just tracking all this information so that they can attest to quality measures. This has been particularly difficult for independent physicians because to both collect all the data that's necessary to collect and, and then submit it and attest and get the money, you know, the, any incentives that are available relative to value-based care. I mean, it takes infrastructure that a lot of the independents don't have, which is one of the reasons why they went to the employed model to begin with. What do you see, you know, coming out of this relative then to, for example, quality reporting? Like, do you feel like in the interest of saving the independent physicians that there's going to be a relaxation of quality reporting because a lot of them can't do it? I'm going to be out on the limb here a little bit with my idea on this. So just hear me out, Stacey. But if I'm trying to reimagine the system and I've worked with primary care doctors you know, for the greater part of a decade now and, you know, leading these ACOs and everyone complains about their EMR being the glorified cash register. And there has to be some standard of measurement for quality. And we all know that. I think there's going to have to be innovation that happens to really have systems that are better engineered and provide an enhanced experience that's not so weighed down by the transactional activity that's required. But but here's the other thing I'm thinking about, and this is a little out there, but you know, I studied with Michael Porter at Harvard Business School, took an executive education seminar over there. And also I've worked with Elizabeth Ticeberg at Dell Medical School here in Austin. And they've been really leading the national dialogue on patient reported outcomes being part of that component. You know, how can we deliver care that promotes outcomes, but put it through the lens of the patient's perspective? We really haven't done that as an industry. If we look at the CMS star rating system, it's all about capturing these different quality measures that are standardized. But but then again, they aren't because every product, every plan has different ways of including who, which patients are included in, in the denominator and how you close the care gap and whatever. But, you know, how do we think about what's important for the patient and uh, what they're doing at, at Del Med, which I really like, you know, they, they put outcomes into three different categories, capability, comfort, and calm. Capabilities, looking at the, the person's ability to do things, uh, their functional outcomes. The comfort part of it, you know, are they being alleviated of their physical and emotional suffering? And then ultimately, are we providing the calm? You know, that's part of quality. I think that the in and of itself, the fee-for-service model creates poor quality. And how do we obliterate that 
transactional, uh, fragmented system and really create something that that's more patient centered. I am starting to think now it, it might if, if there ever is a time to really scrap the stars and, and measure outcomes that matter most to patients, that this might be the time to start looking at that. Here's a, a thought. If we're talking about patient reported outcomes and outcomes that matter to the patient, one of the things that always seems to surface its its ugly head is I forget what percentage, it's a pretty significant percentage right now of the STARS measure is patient satisfaction. And patients just don't have the expertise. And typically, if you ask them why they give somebody a good score instead of a bad score, it has to do with parking in the parking lot or, you know, it was easy to get to or waiting room waits or, you know, like things that, I mean, if convenience is synonymous with access or, you know, contributes to access, then these things matter. But they're not necessarily valuing a successful outcome of a surgery with satisfaction. And therefore, like, does this all boil down to if value-based care really centers on patients getting what they want, but patients aren't well equipped to articulate or evaluate what they what they've gotten, then how do we do this? Well, I think about it this way. Are we asking the right questions to begin with? Does it have to be so complicated? There's certainly a way to standardize that. If, For example, if you know a patient has head and neck cancer and the only thing they care about is being able to swallow and, and have the ability to talk and not be in pain, why don't we ask those patients those questions instead of giving them you know a generic CAPS you know, survey and and they're going through this formidable time of distress and emotional suffering. And then we give them a, a survey with 30 questions and we expect them to provide us some meaningful data. And I just don't think we're, we're going about it the right way. There's also a corollary here with the pandemic. As now more and more patients that are getting care are getting a telemedicine type of encounter and they don't have to go to the office and they can just get care delivered to them conveniently then that's going to be the new norm. So as much as we talked about the economic imperative and then there's this moral injury and that's going to create this, this movement with providers, there's also going to be a consumer movement. I think there's going to be an expectation that the system is going to deliver care more efficiently with better outcomes. And it's going to, it has to be easier to understand. If we waste this moment, there's, there's a crisis, we wasted the opportunity. Now healthcare is insanely expensive. And we have an, we're having to ration it out and everyone's getting poor outcomes. I mean, this isn't going to be the, the, the country that we want to live in. And I think it'll be just a, uh, we already have, a, I think, a broken system, but I, I can't quite say it's a tragedy yet. But I think in that environment, if we don't reimagine and reshape the health system towards value, I do think it'll be a, a national tragedy that's going to, you know, future generations and, and really create a, a bad state for everyone involved. Well, you raise an interesting point, especially relative to telemedicine, because if you start thinking about it, you're not, as a patient, you're not distracted by things that shouldn't be distracting anyway. For example, parking. If the whole of your visit, 100% of your visit consists of talking to the physician, I think it's a lot easier to evaluate those seven minutes than if it's those seven minutes sandwiched between a couple hours of other things. Oh, exactly. And we all think about, you know, the lack of health literacy and patients not understanding discharge instructions. And there's this asymmetry in information. And, and somehow when they leave the hospital, 
they don't understand, you know, their care plan and that's a failure, but you know, Hey, we're both complicit. The patient didn't understand enough and the provider maybe was rushed and there's all that's true. But you're to your point. I mean, when you're having to, to deal and on the ambulatory side anyway, with going to an office and you had, and you're being inconvenienced and having to take off work and drive downtown and pay the copay and you're already stressed out, you're not going to understand you know, as much as what you would have if you're in the comfort of your own home, you're calm. I just think that's an important lesson we need to learn. We, we just can't think about healthcare, you know, continuing on in a way where we have to get patients through a, a fee-for-service machine. And, you know, in a value-based environment, technology is compensated for or it's incented. You know, in a fee-for-service environment, if like Lucy does it, you get paid. If a bot does it, you don't get paid. So what's the purpose of investing all this money to create a bot that there's been a lot said about bots. I'm just using that as a convenient <laughs> example. But let's just say it's an awesome bot. Why should I invest all the time and energy into and my money, you know, to create this awesome technology tool that I'm not going to get paid for in an FFS environment? I can just keep doing it. You know, if I hire seven Lucy's, which is super inefficient for the whole system and costs a whole lot of money. But as a, an individual practice, that's profitable. So it'll be interesting to see also how technology, because we've gone, as, as many have said, we've, it's taken 10 days to accomplish what would have taken 10 years relative to technology. Now everybody's got this capacity. It'll be interesting to see whether people, whether practices are, are actually agitating in the interest of their patient, basically advocating for a value-based system. I agree. I mean, we can't devolve, you know, if we've already moved the needle in some increment, are we really going to go back to the way it was? We have to think critically about everything. And societally, we have to, you know, break the chain of abuse and the outrageous cost escalations. And we have to be thinking about the consumer and the patient all together. One, you know, how are we going to deliver better care for them and, and be able to align with their expectations as well? Let's talk about employers right now. Employers, obviously, there's there's two factors at play here. You know, number one is escalating healthcare costs or healthcare costs that used to be escalating before all elective surgeries got <laughs> shut down and now healthcare costs have actually gone down. But the larger context here is that revenues have gone down more for many employers. So if we think about this in the context of healthcare has historically cost way too much, it's escalated double digits every single year for nine, 10 years. It's it's becoming untenable. That was happening even prior to this pandemic. At the same time that now we've got the threat of a recession looming, whereas a CFO in the salad days, a CFO may have other things that they're focusing on, which they deem more important than dealing with the healthcare line item. But now all of a sudden, I mean, often healthcare is the second biggest line item on a balance sheet from a cost perspective. So what do you think the reaction of employers is going to be? And do you feel that employers are going to demand a more capitated global risk-based payment from not only PCPs, but everybody? I think so. Uh, employers have already been sensitized to the issue, obviously. You know, this healthcare weighs down their balance sheet. They've been dealing with annual double-digit increases for years, but it's been this kind of third rail where like we can't quite, you know, touch the network and the offering because we don't want to, you know, alienate employees. We don't want to disrupt the way that we provide our benefits. But 
just as much as we have this economic imperative to shift the conversation at the federal level and start rethinking about how we design our health system, I think employers now have to see that as well. And can we look at direct contracting models and, you know, really look, seeing, I mean, I've been in those meetings, Stacy, where, you know, we all look each other in the eye and we agree that if we do this, we'll lower costs and improve outcomes. But then it comes down to a conversation around benefit design and they can't quite pull the trigger because it's just too disruptive. So then it's just a tweak and it never really goes anywhere. But now you can really think about how to completely change the offering. It's interesting, too, that there seems to be a delta between what the employer thinks the employees think (laughs) and what the employees actually Mm -hmm. think. I interviewed Ashok Sabramanian earlier in 2019, and he runs a health plan called Centivo, and they offered a plan that had less choice, but it was far less expensive. And they picked high value, high quality providers and put them in a more narrow network. And I forget exactly what percentage of employees went to that plan, but it was non-trivial. I mean, it wasn't like 2%, it was like 30 or something. So this could be a case where the employer is thinking that the disruption is much greater than the employee is thinking it is. That's that's significant. And I think uh, there's definitely something to be learned from that. Absolutely. Do you feel like relative to value-based care, what's our timeline? And as Yogi Berra said, the future is difficult to predict. But if, if we're thinking about value-based care kind of coming out of this, obviously a lot of the quality programs have been stalled at this juncture, put on pause. Like you don't have to do MIPS reporting right now, you know, in the middle of this COVID pandemic, for example. Do we see those quality measures being put back into place and people really thinking to themselves, like how do I turn toward a more fully risk-based model? I think in the interim period, you know, leading up to the next surge, which we know we're going to get, you know, there's going to be a lack of thought, you know, that we need to go towards value in the short term. I I just think everyone's going to be just in recovery mode and thinking, you know, through the lens of survival. How do we do this? But before the coronavirus happened, I was thinking, you know, this is a a transformation that's going to take probably another 10 or 15 years. You know, I, I, I was thinking we were probably 25 years into a 40-year transition already. There's been this prevailing thought we have to get the value. And we all knew that eventually it was going to happen. But I think now there's going to be this pressure, unlike anything we've ever seen. So to answer your question, I think more specifically, I think the, you know, probably the next 12 months, it, there's going to be some thought. But, you know, groups uh, clearly have Healthcare organizations have have looked at their financial risk, you know, not with adopting downside risk in an ACO, but they've looked at their risk and fee for service. Like, wow, you know, going back to your initial question, you know, had we had a more capitated model, we would have had a you know diverse enough revenue where we could have been been okay through this instead of you know this intense financial distress that we're currently experiencing. So I I, I do think there's going to be an inflection point. I just think it's going to be probably in 2021 and beyond where it really takes off. It's going to happen. I think the groundswell is already there. It's just a matter of time. Do you feel like payviders have any sort of starring role in this at all? You know, like just this morning, it being April 28th, there was an announcement. Maybe I just read about it this morning. Blue Blue Shield, I think, bought a big practice in California. You know, like there's a lot of 
Optum is the largest employer of PCPs, I think, in the country at this juncture. You know, like there's a lot of this going on where carriers are are buying providers. How does that impact this equation or does it? I think it definitely impacts the equation. Blue Cross acquired the big provider group you mentioned in California and Texas through Sanitas. They're building out these high-touch clinics. You know, Humana is looking at something similar. I think um, Humana really interests me and if they're, if they're going to pull it off right because they're saying the right things. You know, what the, what I'm hearing is not only are they really changing their focus to becoming more provider-centric and figuring out how the insurance company can be a part of, of the delivery of care, but they're actually saying we are we're going to have more employees that are physicians than we actually have that are insurance company people. Because that's the direction we're headed. And, you know, that's interesting. I think if they're not schizophrenic about it and and they could actually integrate so tightly to where it is a part of their culture and instead of a pet project, you know, I think it, it might be able to work. I guess time will tell, but I think um, employers are going to demand more value, as we talked about earlier. And I think these insurance plans are, are trying to think about how to do that. But my caution to them would be don't continue to you know, hang around the edges of this, really think about this in terms of your short-term strategy. You know, and by that, I mean investing a lot of capital. I feel like if the intent is to better serve the patient and better serve, you know, maybe the employer, an ultimate purchaser of healthcare, I think that then those entities can be aligned to serve those ends. The danger is that if the brass ring becomes returns, then you lose all the checks and balances that potentially a payer and a provider might offset, let's just say, negative inclinations. So if if they join together, they can catalyze the good, but it also could mean profit maximization becomes that much more streamlined. Yeah. Net net, where are we here? I really think we're in, we're at this moment where we're going to have a new reality. There's going to be a new normal. I'm placing my bet on value-based care, and uh, the work I'm doing now is really to think about that through a, a social consciousness. How can we assist providers and other industry partners in being a part of that change? There's a movement that's going to take place, and and I, I think we all need to align and decide how we're going to pay for it, who's going to be providing the design and the input, and and how are we going to engage patients in the process, and ultimately, how are we going to demonstrate better outcomes, lower costs, higher quality. I think we can do it. Uh, Stacey, I, I wouldn't be saying this if I didn't believe it. I've, I made a decision years ago to leave fee-for-service, and you know I've placed my entire livelihood on this working, and, and I think our country needs to think about it the same way. We have to go all in instead of trying to balance these two canoes like we've been doing. And now is the time to really be serious and, and, and make that seismic shift happen. So that's where I see it going. I'm excited about that. I, I think it, this could be the good that, if anything, comes out of this pandemic. Eric, if anyone is interested in learning more about the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, where would you send them for more info? We are online. So we've been around for a few years, you can go to accountablecarelc.org and we're going to have an, a major announcement in the fall. I would say right now, if you're a provider group, reach out to us, sign up. It's it's free to join the movement. Be a part if you liked anything I said here and you want to be part of this drive to value. 
sign up. We want you in the tent. We have some exciting things that are going to happen and we're about to we're about to launch version 2.0 of this learning collaborative and really take it to uh, new heights. Thank you so much, Eric Weaver. Thank you, Stacy. Again, it's been a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.